Hi, it's Kate Brownfield from ADHDKidsCanThrive.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, my guest today is Jan Stewart. She's an ADHD and neurodiversity advocate, governess expert, today's parent columnist, and best-selling author of Hold On Tight, A Parent's Journey Raising Children with Mental Illness. Jan wrote an emotional, brutally honest memoir that not only tells her story of raising two children with multiple complex mental health and neurodevelopment disorders, but importantly celebrates success and provides readers with key insights and practical strategies to inspire and empower them to persevere and not give up. Please enjoy this conversation with Jan. Hi, Jan. Thank you for being here. I'm really looking forward to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to speaking to you. Okay, so you have joined us today on the podcast to share a little bit, actually a lot probably, um, about your personal journey of raising children who struggle with mental illness. And you wrote a book about it called Hold On Tight, A Parent's Journey of Raising Children with Mental Illness. So let's start there. And why don't you tell us um, why you wrote this book? Absolutely. Thanks so much. And, you know, Kate, you and I have so many parallels in our lives. We both have personal stories with kids and my kids don't just have mental illness. They're neurodivergent as well. And we'll talk about that. And we both wrote our books to help others, you know, me with hold on tight and you with this is how we roll. So I think that's uh, the background, but my husband's and my journey started very shortly after our first child, Andrew, was born, and it escalated with the birth of his younger sister less than two years later, Ainsley. Uh, both my husband, David, and I come from wonderful families, secure, loving Um, We naively assumed that both kids would continue down that same successful path as we had. I think most parents probably do. And our biggest worries that I look back on with shake my headers, which school should we send them to or should we educate them because we're in Canada in English or French? You know, you look back at those and they're totally ludicrous. But the cracks began to show very quickly and they grew. And I felt like I had just fallen into a deep hole. I felt alone. I felt scared. You know, words like ADHD, along with co-occurring autism, Tourette syndrome, uh, anxiety, executive function, learning disabilities. I had never really known what those were in depth. I had heard the words, that was it. And since then, my kids are grown now. It's been an endless roller coaster with unfettered impulsivity hyperactivity, distractibility, frightening meltdowns from emotional overload, lots of tics, paralyzing anxiety at times, bizarre compulsive nonstop rituals from OCD, and and the list goes on, significant learning disabilities. But there have equally been so many uplifting times and ones that we need to celebrate. And I'm so proud of my kids. They found their niches in life. Although, you know, to this day, it continues. We've had to work hard with healthcare providers, making sure that they communicate with one another to find schools that would really partner with us. Uh, We face new challenges, everything from when Andrew was young, people saying, oh, too bad he can't live a normal life. 
I'm sure you've heard. Oh that. yeah, the yeah. What others yeah, say it aims is like to teachers consistent. Teachers constantly saying, "Oh, she's just lazy. She can do it. She's bright." Yeah. You know that kind of thing. Um, and it's their stories that propelled me into advocacy many years ago. I've sat on about seven different boards and advisory councils in Canada and the United States. Uh, I was vice chair of Canada's leading psychiatric hospital, CAMH, which is world renowned. Uh, at Mass General Hospital in Boston, I sat on the Department of Neuropsychopharmacology Parent Advisory Council, and I currently chair the largest autism services provider uh, in Canada, Carrie's Place. Uh, I also write a monthly column on autism for today's parent. And so that goes on. And You're very, very busy. <laughs> That's okay. So here I have way. a question. So your children are now adults. How like yes. are they in their 30s? They are in their 30s. Okay. So for sure, when they were growing up, um, the world was very different even back then. Wasn't even, I feel like, making the awareness of all the different things that your children struggled with was not there. I mean, uh, it was you're correct. You're you correct. were in the dark ages, like raising it your really, children it, in the dark. Yeah, you're correct a dark to a large extent. I yeah. had to really uh, be the, a pioneer in many cases, but not in others. It hasn't changed all that much in some ways. And in other ways, yes. there's clearly much greater awareness, but not enough, which is why as you to circle back, I wrote Hold On Tight, you know, to to help parents and readers, also friends, family members, employers, educators, understand what it's really like raising neurodivergent children. But also I provide and I gift readers with 13 key insights to help ease the journey. It's a brutally honest book. I'm thrilled it's won the Mom's Choice Award and it's really become my purpose in life. You know, I'm an ambassador of hope and perseverance. And if I can do it, you can do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You have such a light um, presence about you too, and a very <laughs> positive um, essence about you for, I know something that's been very difficult, right? It has not been easy. So I believe you that this is um, why you're here. Okay. So update us on where your kids and family are now. Sure. Um, my kids are my heroes. They, they are incredible. They know, as I said, that endless roller coaster is going to continue, but they face life head on with determination, grit, and real optimism, as well as that key word that I use, perseverance. Yeah. So Andrew, he works full-time at Rogers Communications, which is one of Canada's leading telecommunications companies in IT. He lives semi-independently, just five minutes away from us, so that David and I take turns every morning going down and overseeing him getting up and getting ready for work, and off he goes. And he has quite an infectious charm. I call him Mr. Mayor. Everywhere we go, he knows people because he has no filter, right? Welcome yeah. to ADHD. The positives are he chats everyone up, and they usually respond well to him. But he struggles with fairly severe impulsivity and anxiety, along with his OCD, which is fairly controlled, but rears its head from time to time. And it's complicated by the fact that he has limited cognitive capacity in his case a yeah. little bit. Okay. Now, Ainsley, on the other hand, is the most gifted child and youth counselor working with young children with ADHD, autism, other neurodevelopmental disorders and mental health disorders. She really understands 
and is empathetic. And I think a lot of it comes from her own lived experiences, as well as her deep, you know, knowledge of Andrew as a brother and growing up. She lives just another five minutes away and she's extremely kind and caring, but she struggles with severe ADHD and executive function problems. I mean, trying to get anything done, organization, time management is very, very difficult. And she's working with her therapist clearly and has for years on this, but her best therapist is probably her dog that she got four years ago and is the love of her life and unconditional love really helps. Yeah. Well, and clearly your kids are exuding your essence too, Jan. I mean, I'm not surprised that they're very (laughs) loving and friendly people. I think that might come from your, um, your leadership in the family home. That's well, amazing. You, you know, that's amazing. I mean, I'm getting a feel here, a sense for, <laughs> thank you know, you. it's all connected. It matters. I mean, clearly you're a very loving uh, mother. And even though your kids have been very difficult um, to, to raise with their struggles, um, it sounds like your kids are living these like very um, loving lives in spite of their struggles and yeah, that they're so very wanna... well supported by you. Oh, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, what I want to point out, Kate, is that I know I'm white, heterosexual, privileged, and that's allowed our family to afford the cost that sometimes, as you know, can be very steep in raising neurodivergent children. But the insights and the life lessons in Hold On Tight and that we're going to discuss now really apply universally, as you're going to hear. It doesn't matter if you're single or married or struggling financially or not, whatever your culture, ethnicity, race, religion, sexual orientation, you know, the list goes on. They really apply and no one is alone. Right. You're right. You're right. Okay. So what steps would you share with parents who are just starting on this journey with their children? Right. I think there are a number of life lessons from Hold On Tight that I want to highlight for those just starting out first. Trust your gut as a parent. You know your children better than anyone else. If you think something is wrong, really wrong, it generally is. Yes, you have to listen to your doctor. And I always say that I'm empathetic to doctors who see a number of parents who needlessly and excessively worry. But if what they say doesn't resonate, keep looking. That's number one. Number two. And this is the most overarching insight throughout your child's life. And I can say this as a parent of grown children now. Insist on an integrated partnership approach with everyone involved in your child's care. So make sure healthcare providers, psychiatrists, psychologists, social worker, whoever you're working with, communicate with one another. Make sure your schools truly partner with them, partner with you, or find another school. Ainsley School, for example, held monthly group meetings with us, her principal, all her teachers, and brought in her external psychologist so that we could all share information, get on the same page, and put plans forward. Didn't always work, but she stayed in school. Yeah. And how did that help you as a parent, too? I imagine that probably brought you a lot of comfort. More than comfort. It brought me more control because I knew we were a team. And to me, partnership and teamwork mean everything. And that way we trusted one another and everything was open and honest and transparent. And that's the only way in my view to move forward. 
Yeah. I think that's great advice, right? Because I love the monthly meetings because then you're helping, you're having the control and not feeling like things are getting out of control with your child at school, which is often what can happen, right? So third, talk openly with your children. They're scared. They're frightened if they really don't know, why am I out of control? Why am I causing such pain and havoc at home, at school? Why don't I have friends? Or why are are my friends abandoning me like Ainsley had? You know, could happen to any of that. So sit down with them. Listen carefully. Try not to criticize, not my strength, (laughs) and, and really validate their feelings. It's so important to do that. And it'll really give them the confidence then to succeed. And and that's so important. Fourth, research. Research, research, research. Systematic research. Reach out to everyone and anything you can. Of course, with the internet, I think you know, verify anything you hear or read. You know, ADHD does not come from poor parenting, and we still see that on the net today. Mm -hmm. Autism does not come from vaccines. Same kind of thing. And this includes embracing medications and therapy as needed. Next, siblings, please don't forget siblings who are neurotypical or who have fewer issues. Ainsley has fewer than Andrew. It's so easy when you're consumed with a child in need or in crisis to unintentionally relegate the sibling to the background. So make sure you pay special attention to them. And finally, for a new parent starting out, be kind to your partner. Obviously, this is true for all of us, but when you when you have the stress and strain involved in raising neurodivergent children and children with mental illnesses, it can be debilitating and it's easiest to lash out to the person who's closest to you. You know, David and I want to kill each other from time to time. And, you know, he's very slow compared to me in decision making and I'm overly decisive. We're both right. But the key is that we trust each other, lean on one another. Um, My advice is give each other the benefit of the doubt. I really believe everyone tries their best. May not be what you want, but they're trying. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, How would you say, like, what kind of things did you say to your daughter when she was like having a hard time in friends? Like, can you just give us an example of just like what you would say? Sure. When she was so upset, (laughs) So Ainsley's behavior was totally out of control at school. She was disruptive, jumping on desks, swearing, rude. She was constantly sent to the principal's office. I was so drained by those calls, Kate, every day almost. And she left me a note one day in my bed that said, Mom, I know I'm a bad child, but I can't help my out of control behavior. And that was an immediate cue. David and I sat down with her and Andrew as well and explain to her, A, you're not a bad child. What's happening is not your fault. In effect, we separated her identity from her challenges and issues and conditions so that she wasn't 100% tied to them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's those kind of open conversations that open the door. I also promised both kids that I would never rest until I find found them the right help. And they know I keep my promises. So, yeah, that's beautiful. Okay. All right. So let's talk about like the next step. I think of parents, right? So there's the beginning, which for some kids could be as early as first, second, third grade. Sometimes parents kind of get involved and figure out that they need to do things when the child is in 
junior high. Um, the question is kind of when a, when the parent is in the middle of the journey, I think we kind of get um, parents can, we all feel this way that once we take the right steps to help our child, that we'll get some kind of sense of relief and that things will start to click. But as you kind of go along on your journey, right, you're, the, the support from the parents and the team is constant, right? Yes, it so, changes. Yeah. It changes, it evolves. So what's your advice when parents are in the middle of their journey? How do they keep going? How do they persevere? So the first thing, Kate, I would say is remember those tips for the parents starting out. They're still extremely relevant before. And with partnerships, they then extend through school into employment even, uh, where Ainsley and Andrew themselves, or if they can't do it, in Andrew's case, he needs me as an ally or advocate, you know, need to find inclusive employers willing to be understanding and accommodating. With healthcare providers, you may need to change a doctor because he's either retiring, the relationship is no longer productive. Uh, at one point, Ainsley felt that she was over-medicated and she was spiraling down. So she made a change. And Andrew's psychologist, after many years of great partnership, it began to be less productive going round and round in circles. They had outgrown each other. So healthcare as well. And schools, the same thing. you know. And that extends to university. By university time, again, your children should be able to hopefully advocate for themselves and if they can, it's advocating for that partnership. So yeah. when you're talking openly with your children, that other insight, be sure you educate and involve them throughout. Don't hide or avoid information. And by the way, that includes, Kate, in my mind, medications. Call them medications. Not, don't hide them, special vitamins, because you want the kids to take them and you're scared. <laughs> that happens all the time, as you know. And what this does is you educate them and involve them and empower them gradually. So as they grow older, they can become more adept at advocating for themselves and becoming involved in their own treatment, which sets them up for the future. And this also sets you up as a parent of an adult where you move from family CEO effectively to coach, depending on your child's profile and needs. Right. With that research, Remember to keep going, stay current. Of course, you have to take breathers, but there are always new findings, new therapies, new meds, you know, whatever, and that's important. Also, here's a big one. Reset the expectations for your life. Now, this covers friends who are not truly supportive. It can be very difficult. I've had it happen. Shed them. You don't have the energy or reserves for them. Certain family members who are critical judgmental or think they have all the answers. My mother, who was my best friend, Jan, if you were just a stricter parent, Ainsley's unruly behavior would disappear. You have to learn how to navigate and limit engagement. And by the way, when you role model that, your children will watch you and learn that for themselves as they grow older. This includes also being kind, as we said, to your own partner and to yourself really important. And finally, at this stage, if you haven't done it, now is the time to put together a financial plan. You may not know what your child is going to look like or need as they grow into adulthood. 
So be conservative because as we said, the costs can be very high. You know, medications not covered by insurance, private therapy, even for some supportive housing or other things. So plan. And if you're not adept, find a financial planner. It really makes a difference. Yeah. Okay. And you're actually reiterating the fact that the arc for the for your child goes beyond age 18. Oh, we, yes. It's lifelong. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think there's kind of this perception that once a child turns 18, and then hopefully if they go to college, that then after they get out of college, they may be, you know, there's just a internal perception that they're on their way. And that's not always the case, right? Oh, no. And, you know, again, it's not that people used to say you outgrow ADHD, you outgrow, you know, Tourette's, you don't, but you learn to control or manage. A lot of people use the word recovery. It's not a word that I particularly like, but other people like it and I understand it. In Andrew's case, for example, at Rogers, he has a lot of difficulty with change and transitions between activities that many kids with ADHD have. And so what have they done? They've set his work hours the same every day while the rest of his team members work on shift. There's just one example of an accommodation that an employee with ADHD or similar disorders can advocate for. Yeah, that's terrific. Okay, good to know. Can you share with us how this journey that you've been given in this life has has changed you? Yes, um, it's changed me in many ways, but not in all ways. So this, as I said, the stress and strain of raising neurodevelopmental kids for me has been life-changing. You know, at the start, as I said, I was frightened and frozen, isolated. I didn't know where to turn or what to do. And there has been, and will continue to be from time to time. And it's okay, totally normal resentment, some anger, frustration, and pain. But in my case, it's that emotional pain that propelled me forward. And, and has made me much stronger and more resilient. You know, it's changed me at my core. It's opened my world in a multitude of ways that I never knew existed. I think it's taught me to be a better parent, a better partner, and a better individual. Um, I'm much more empathetic and understanding. As I said, I may not be more patient, although I try. And while in my business career, judging people was essential to my success, I've learned to separate out the professional and the personal and be less judgmental of people personally. One of the most important lessons that I've learned, and I talk about this in Hold On Tight, is not only to accept, but to embrace the fact that your life is not going to be as hoped for or dreamed for in many ways. Once you can do that, you can move forward. And it's the kids that have turned my soul into something far better and become that ambassador of hope and perseverance. And and it's breathtaking to me. I will add that in the middle of all this, 13 years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer stage three, and I endured almost 18 months of treatment with four operations, double mastectomy, chemo, radiation. But that cancer journey didn't change me or my soul. I knew that it would be over in 12 to 18 months, but I know that Andrew and Ainsley face challenges every day. And that's why they're my heroes. They're the ones who have changed my soul. Wow. That's incredible. 
<laughs> you clearly, by the time you had the breast cancer, you were an incredibly resilient woman and wise. Well, thank you. I think I am wise. <laughs> <that way>. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, just incredibly hopeful and um, positive. It's amazing. Okay, so as you reflect on this journey, I think you've tapped a little bit on this. I'm like, what really matters? I think there are four children. points that matter that I've thought about this. So first, connectivity and support are so important. You know, those supportive and meaningful connections with others are vital for our kids to combat feelings of isolation. And for us, by the way, isolation, loneliness, and they really enhance feelings of belonging and self-worth. So keep that top of mind. Secondly, as I said, Accept and embrace your life, but more importantly, accept and embrace your child where they are in life. And you've talked about this, Kate, you're not where you would wish them to be. I would wish that, you know, Andrew was a famous, you know, CEO or Ainsley was a, you know, that's just not reality. And when I think back when I was pregnant with Andrew and we, I talked at the beginning about those ludicrous discussions we had about which school or what language. They are indeed ridiculous in hindsight. What matters is that our children are as happy as they can be and feel secure and safe. So we want to help them get there. And our job is to give them those tools to empower them and make them confident. Three, try your best. And don't be afraid to make mistakes along the way. You have to. There's lots of trial and error. And there, I still, lots of trial and error. You know, one afternoon I came home and found Ainsley hiding in her closet, shaking in fear because her brother was having a frightening meltdown from emotional overload. And I kicked myself that I hadn't protected her better. But you have to forgive yourself for your mistakes and those mistakes like that. And you're more than enough. You're your child's champion and you're their, you're their hero in their mind. And finally, keep everything in perspective. Remember that there are always families in worse shape and in better shape than you and your child. And I always say, keep singing through the tears and don't give up. Great. Thank you, Jan. These were like amazing, wise words. Good. Heed, I would say heed her advice. She's uh, learned a lot and is sharing her wisdom and her positivity. Um, thank you very much for sharing. Delighted. <laughs>